You know, it's very obvious we're fortunate here at Jones Day to get regular updates on intellectual property law from a number of our lawyers here. One of our most consistently popular programs, and one I look forward to every year, is the December Women in IP podcast, where we take a look back at the year's most significant developments in IP law and also talk about what to expect in the year ahead. We have Meredith Wilkes and Anna Raymer here to tell us what we need to know. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Meredith Wilkes co-leads Jones Day's Global Trademarks, Unfair Competition, and Copyrights Group. She is a lead trial lawyer that has focused on high-stakes trademark, trade dress, trade secret, false advertising, and design patent litigation matters for global brands in federal and state courts throughout the U.S. for more than 20 years. Meredith also chairs Jones Day's Women in IP Initiative. And Anna Ramier has significant experience managing international brands for clients. She counsels clients regarding the development and protection of intellectual property assets in a wide range of industries. Anna oversees all aspects of trademark clearance, prosecution, and maintenance, and she advises on trademark and copyright issues and license agreements and commercial transactions. Meredith, Anna, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us, Dave. Thank you, you know, Dave. Here we are. Uh, 2020 was not like any of us expected or envisioned, I'm sure. In, in fact, you know, Meredith, you and I do this every year. Every December, we do a look back and a look forward. Maybe I don't remember correctly, but nobody had predicted a global pandemic that would throw us all off for 2020. So under some strange circumstances, you know, we, we got through the year. But I thought if you didn't mind talking about that for a minute, what was it like? And I always say practicing law is challenging enough with all the responsibilities and the plates you have spinning and so forth. You're trying to serve your clients. I assume business development is always a priority. You're helping younger partners and associates get acclimated. You've got pro bono responsibilities. Meredith, how did you do it this year? This had to be probably one of the more difficult years of your professional career. <laughs> you know, Dave, it's funny. You, you talk about 2020, and I saw a meme the other day that said, 2020 is no, no on its side. <laughs> right. Oh, that's <laughs> and, good. That's good. And, and you're spot on. We do do this every year. And... You love to ask our group to look into the crystal ball and predict things that are going to happen down the pike. And I don't think anybody predicted where we would be right now. And it's certainly been full of a lot of different challenges, to be sure. I can only imagine how difficult it would be for a new lawyer starting their practice and trying oh, sure. to learn how to be a lawyer and, and become part of the firm. I, I feel very blessed that I've got really great people who I work with and just great teams and a lot of resources that we have at a firm level and on a personal level. So there have been some challenges to be sure, but it's been great because we've got good technology and we've been able to really stay connected. And in some ways, I think, yes, we miss the personal connection to be yeah. sure, but yeah. but with all the, the WebEx calling and the Zoom calling and things like that, in some ways, we're actually more connected because we see each other face-to-face -face on, on video calls than mm -hmm. we've been in the past. To be sure, challenges, but also some great things have come out of it as well. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in 2021. Yeah, I found what I miss, and you mentioned the informal interaction. That's what I miss most. I mean, you're, you pass somebody in the hallway, it's like, oh, you know, I've been meaning to ask you about that. Or someone will pop by and just sit in your office and you catch up on an idea or you brainstorm something. And you can still do that, but it's got to be orchestrated. It's got to be planned. Some of the spontaneity, I think, helps, especially with what we do here in this department. But quite the year. Anna, I'm guessing 2020 was probably not your favorite year either. Tell me if I'm wrong. 
<laughs> I'd agree with that, Dave. Lots of interesting challenges for 2020, learning how to practice law in a different way. Um, also added elementary school teacher to my resume since we had a lot of homeschooling <laughs> in our household. So that yeah. was fun. Taught an internet law class all via Zoom. So had to learn how to do that. So just interesting things like you mentioned, didn't expect for 2020. So lots of fun surprises there. For sure. For sure. Well, things have to get better. So, you know, fingers crossed, right? So let's talk about 2020. Even under these bizarre, unusual circumstances. It was still an eventful year for trademark law, at least in the United States. The Supreme Court heard three cases relating to the Lanham Act. Let's start with the United States Patent and Trademark Office v. Booking.com. Meredith, if you can, summarize the case and tell us what that decision ultimately means. Oh, you bet, Dave. And you've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. I'm a self- professed trademark law nerds. So one of the super cool things I think about 2020 was the fact that we got to hear some of the oral argument in front of the United States Supreme Court because uh -oh. they were streaming it. Ordinarily, you have to go stand in line and be in Washington, D.C. to actually get into the Supreme Court and sure. watch the oral argument take place. And one of the super cool things about the Booking.com case was that it was the first streamed oral argument in front of the United States Supreme Court so we mm. could dial in and listen to the oral argument. So that was really awesome. Um, since we're doing a Women in IP podcast, the other added super cool thing was that you had all the litigants represented by women. Oh. Two women giving oral argument in front of the United States Supreme Court, which is super, super rare. So that mm. was that was a really cool thing too. And, and both super talented litigators and really just so awesome to hear their interaction with the court. But it, from the Lanham Act standpoint, you know, was, the question was whether or not the addition of a top-level domain, .com, to an otherwise generic term, booking, right. could then create a protectable trademark. Is the, the whole greater than the sum of its parts? And the United States Supreme Court ended up holding that, yes, booking.com was, in fact, capable of protection, and that adding that .com made it a, a protectable identifier. I remember you and I talking about this case, and I don't recall for certain what your take was. Were you surprised at the ruling, or did it come out pretty much the way you expected? I was not surprised at the ruling, and not because I'm some sort of Lanham Act genius or, or predictor, or that my crystal ball was working particularly yeah. well on any given day, but the way you cast the issue as a litigant can become very, very important in terms of how the court rules, and this is an excellent example of that philosophy, in that you had essentially the United States Patent and Trademark Office asking for a categorical rule, mm -hmm. a categorical prohibition against adding .com and creating an otherwise protectable mark. And anytime you're asking for super huge steps like that, odds are, not always, but it makes it very difficult at that point to get the relief you're seeking. And so because the Patent and Trademark Office was seeking a categorical prohibition, I was thinking that perhaps the Supreme Court was going to go the way of booking.com and say that it was a protectable mark and decline the invitation from the solicitor to make a categorical rule prohibiting it. I see. Booking, that's an action, it's a verb. If I wanted to try to trademark shopping.com, is that fair game now? 
<laughs> it might be. It I'm might be. Do it. You know, I, I got to end this call because I'm going to go do that right now. So I'll get back. You know, just, just but all right, so let's move on. Point that you raised, Dave, because one of the things that Chief Justice John Roberts talked about during the oral argument was exactly what you said with the shopping.com. And, and here's the key distinction. The reason that booking.com was okay is because the Chief Justice said no one refers to online sites where you would book travel as travelocities or price lines, right? Yeah. And so that's the distinction here. It's a great point that you raise. Okay, good enough. Well, let's keep moving. There are two more Supreme Court cases we need to talk about, I think. And we'll stay with you, Meredith, on this one. Rumag Fasteners, Inc. v. Fossil, Inc. This was about willful infringement, right? It was. And this ended a battle and a split, really a 50-50 split in the circuits as to whether or not a successful plaintiff under the Lanham Act could recover profits without showing willful infringement. And so there had been a debate and a split as to whether or not you had to show willfulness to get profits as a measure of recovery. Hmm. There was nothing in the Lanham Act that specifically required that you show willfulness to get profits. In fact, it just says that you can recover defendants' profits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But because it was seen as, as a disgorgement, as some sort of equitable remedy, some of the courts had fashioned relief over time that had said, well, you have to show some element of evil intent or some sort of willfulness before you're going to be able to get that relief. And after years and years and years and battles all over the place, the Supreme Court finally settled that score and said, nope, it's not, it doesn't appear anywhere in the plain language. So it's not going to be an absolute requirement. It's a factor to be considered. And so it, that's where we've left it. Is, and I'm trying to remember, because we talked about this case also. There were conflicting rulings at different circuit courts, weren't there? Or am I thinking of something else? No, you're spot on. There was a dead split among the circuits. So depending on where you were litigating the case could dictate what type of damages as a defendant you were looking at or a plaintiff, what you may recover. And so you can imagine how that might lead to forum shopping and other sorts of things. But yeah, where you were located, where your case was being tried could really have an effect on the outcome. Well, the Supreme Court doing their job, bringing us some much needed clarity. That's for sure. Okay. Last one, Meredith. Lucky Brand Dungarees, Inc. v. Marcel Fashions Group, Inc. This is interesting. You were kind enough, as you usually do. You sent over some notes for me. But I sensed something underwhelmed you about this ruling, the case, the whole matter. And I don't mean to overstate that, but what's your take now? And what, well, first of all, what happened and why your reaction kind of vanilla, I guess? What's going on here? <laughs> okay. Um... This is what we call leading the witness, isn't it? <laughs> I think so, and, and compound, but all right, <laughs> let me unwrap that one a little bit. Um, okay, sorry. There's, there are some people, I think, who, who looked at this case and said, how did this get to the Supreme Court in the first instance? And the reason I say that is because usually when a case in our space, in the Lanham Act space, usually when a case gets to the Supreme Court, it's a Romag type of case. It's a case where you've got a split among the circuits. Mm -hmm. on an important issue and we need somebody the supreme court to come in and weigh in on on what the law is and resolve the split among the circuits that's usually how the supreme court weighs in on something like this yeah. and here the lucky case really involved only the decision of the united states court of appeals for the second circuit and okay. so it was a little bit surprising in some respects that the court would take 
an issue that only was coming really out of a decision from one circuit. So that was one thing that made it at least sort of interesting to people watching from the sidelines in terms of why they would take it. The second is what the real issue was. And, And the question was whether or not this idea of defensive preclusion could apply, meaning that if you didn't raise a defense in an earlier case, would you be precluded from raising it in a future case? And the reason people were scratching their head and saying, well, why is this this major issue for the Supreme Court to be deciding is it would be so rare that the issue could ever come up. So what do I mean by that? This defensive preclusion thing became an issue because the parties had been litigating with each other for 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Nobody remembers why this all started anymore. Sort of, yeah. This started with a fight between these two parties in 2001. And then they settled it, and then they had another fight, and the settlement was reached, and then they had another fight, and they they tried to raise the issue that, no, you released these claims, and so you can't sue us because you released them. And then they said, no, you can't raise that because you should have raised it, and you didn't raise it. And so that's how the issue percolated and got to the Supreme Court. It's really, it was a civil procedure issue more than a trademark issue. It just arose in the context of a trademark infringement case. That's how we got there. And then the Supreme Court held that there was no such thing as defensive preclusion. And so you're not forced to raise it or lose it if you were to be involved in serial litigation with another party. And I know people switch law firms and so forth. If some of the original attorneys starting in that case, that's half someone's career, 20 years, right? I'm not saying that's all they worked on, but that's astounding to think about that. Talk about files and, and paperwork and reams and uh, stuff. Good grief, 20 years. And that's probably not even a record, right? <laughs> they do sometimes take on a life of their own, literally. <laughs> Evidently. So well, let's swing over to Anna for a second. Hey, by the way, Anna, I was going through some of my notes from some of our previous podcasts. You were involved with Meredith in that famous Blurred Lines podcast. Remember that? couple years ago oh yes that was a fun one that's that was the dust up for people who don't remember that was the dust up between the marvin gay estate and robin thick over i I don't remember the exact music terms or whatever but basically they thought robin thick had ripped off part of marvin gay's what's going on for that robin thick song that sold anyway so you were around for that another time we did i think we're doing like a supreme court roundup cases or something that might have been in 19 anyway so welcome back anna Thanks for having me today. I can only guess that your third podcast is just as exciting as the first two, isn't it, right? Oh, it's been fun so far. There you go. There you go. All right. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO, made some rule modifications this year that we ought to examine. Tell us about the changes that came about during 2020. That's right, Dave. So effective February this year, the USPTO moved to mandatory electronic filing. Not a big deal because most people were already filing that way anyway, but for most types of trademark applications, as well as all the submissions that go along with the applications and registrations, like your office action responses and your Mm -hmm. renewals, all of that needs to be filed electronically now. So that was the first big thing from the rule changes. Um, The second was that the PTO now requires an email address for both the applicant or registrant and the authorized attorney, if there is one. So before, you could just have the authorized attorney's email address. Um, Now you need to have the trademark owner, too, even if they're represented by an attorney. Of course, there was some pushback on that issue, having that in the database. So now it's masked. You can't see it, but you do still have to provide it. The PTO wanted a way to contact the 
trademark owner electronically if for some reason the attorney's email couldn't be used like the representation had ended. And the last thing to mention is that there were some updates to the requirements for trademark specimens of use. Mm. Um, most of these were just to conform with what was already existing requirements or precedential case law. But one to mention that I think is particularly of note is that you need to make sure that the web pages that you use for specimens of use, so when you print out those website screenshots, mm -hmm. that they have both the URL and the access or print date because they need to have that to be accepted as specimens now. I see. These seem like reasonable changes, kind of modern, introducing tech and kind of addressing the reality of maybe where things were going anyway. But people you're working with, clients and so forth, they're happy with this and different or did it make a big difference to them one way or the other? Not huge changes here. Most of this we were doing already. We were already doing this with the specimens and, and filing electronically. You know, we do now have to provide that email address, but that's not really a big deal for most clients. And I think it really is helping the trademark office, which was the purpose of the rule change to mm -hmm. really have some more administrative efficiency and optimizing their workflow processes to get rid of all that paper. There you go. Almost always a good thing. Okay, mm -hmm. good. Let's talk about trade dress. And Meredith, I've got to be honest, you and I have been doing these for, I don't know, three years or something. I'm not sure we specifically ever talked about a trade dress matter. If we have, I forgot and I, I apologize. But for people who maybe their knowledge is not complete on this or they're not certain, before we get into the specifics of the Fournier industry case, tell us what trade dress matters address. What's that all about? You know, Dave, you're right. I don't think we have ever talked about a trade dress case. No. So trade dress is a form of, of intellectual property that's also protected by the Lanham Act. And it generally encompasses the visual appearance of a product or its packaging. So it's the, the packaging or the appearance, and, and it also has to indicate source. So in that respect, it's the dressed up look of something and it tells you who makes it, right? So right. what does that mean? We're talking about color, right? The robin egg blue of yeah. Tiffany. Shape, right? The, the Coca-Cola bottle or Fiji water bottle. Those are examples of trade dress. So that's what we're talking about. It can be protected by the Lanham Act, but it has sort of a heightened requirement for protection. You have to, to show usually that it has acquired what's called secondary meaning, meaning that people, when they see it, associate it with a source. That's what okay. we're talking about when we talk about trade dress. Okay, good enough. So what happened with Forney Industries? What are the specifics of that matter? What happened? So this was an interesting case decided by the federal circuit because historically, people like Anna and me would tell clients, if you're trying to protect color in the United States Patent and Trademark Office or through litigation, it's not inherently distinctive, meaning you have to show secondary meaning, the connection between the product and the source that I was, I was telling you about a minute ago. And typically we would do that through surveys, which are time consuming and very expensive. But the Forney decision from the Federal Circuit changed that. In Forney, we were talking about this multicolor mark on packaging for welding accessories, of all things, right? Oh. When, you, when you think about color, you're thinking like consumer goods, <laughs> you know, Tiffany, you know, that sort of thing. But no, it's, it was this multicolored packaging on welding accessories. And Forney sought to register this, this gradient yellow-red type of color on their packaging in the, in the trademark office, and they did not submit that survey. And it was refused, and they took it all the way up, and the court held that multicolor packaging can be inherently distinctive. 
Um, you don't have to show secondary meaning to get that multicolor trade dress registration. And so that one surprised a lot of people because there are a lot of Supreme Court cases, historically, the Qualtex decision, the Walmart decision, that say that color is not inherently distinctive and you have to show secondary meaning. So that one was a surprise. Don't know what's going to happen with that one, yeah. but uh, race to the trademark office right now with your multicolor marks to try and, and get those registered in view of the Federal Circuit's decision. I guess so. And I'm not in product branding or you know, brand management or everything, but as you were talking, I'm thinking of like, okay, the Tide box. I saw my wife do laundry last night. Maybe that's why it was stuck in my head. But, you know, those very distinctive, those circles, orange and yellow and, you know, whatever those colors are, could that be subject to trade dress protection if Procter & Gamble wanted to run out and say, hey, we're, you know, we want to do this? I mean, hypothetically, I don't know if Procter & Gamble's doing that, but is that the kind of thing that might be protected now? Theoretically, color, whether it's the Robin A. Blue Tiffany or the brown on a UPS truck or the orange on a tie box or, you know, any any individual color for sure is capable of trade dress protection as long as it meets the statutory requirements. And historically, we had thought that that also meant that you had to submit evidence with your application of secondary meaning that survey that shows association between the source and mark and other types of things, advertising expenditures and, and those sorts of things. But now perhaps you don't need to do that study in view of what the Federal Circuit held in the Forney decision. Well, it, that's a, an interesting narrative to watch, I think. So we'll see what happens. Okay, Anna, as if 2020 weren't challenging enough, there were actually counterfeiting cases relating to COVID-19. This sounds bad and nefarious already, but some of this was relating to personal protective equipment or PPE. Is that correct? What what happened? That's right, Dave. Unfortunately, in 2020, we did see some opportunistic bad actors that are seeking to profit from this global pandemic by selling counterfeit personal protective equipment or engaging in price gouging of that type of equipment. So as you can imagine, I mean, there's some significant public safety issues there, of course, as well as, you know, harm to a manufacturer's reputation about what these third parties are doing. So of course, the issue received attention from law enforcement agencies, they increased efforts against this kind of COVID-19 related fraud and counterfeiting. But we also saw some brand owners take action too. Particularly what's interesting here was in the price gouging context. Uh-huh. That's because under the first sale or exhaustion rule in trademark law that the right to control the distribution of a trademark product generally doesn't extend beyond the first sale of that product. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's how we have these resale shops and resale e-commerce platforms. So you can sell a good after you have purchased it. But that first sale doctrine doesn't apply where the genuine goods are so altered that they're considered to be materially different. Mm. Here, we've had in the past at least one court of appeal holding that different pricing in the products can constitute a material difference. And that's because this type of price gouging can reflect negatively on a brand owner. So, you know, you have consumers wrongly believing that the trademark owner is the one that's authorizing these sales to take unfair advantage of of certain circumstances. And that impacts whether the consumers are willing to buy that product again or purchase from that manufacturer if they think that's the kind of conduct they engage in. So we see this material difference based on price argument receiving some traction in 2020 with these PPE cases. 
And courts did grant injunctive relief from the resale of products at exorbitant prices. You can see how courts would be really upset about this type of conduct. One court, for example, in connection with Bass said that no amount of money could repair the damage to a company's brand and reputation if it's associated with time of price gouging, which is the expense of healthcare workers and first responders in the COVID-19 crisis. Oh, this could be a public relations disaster for a company if this goes unchecked, right? Oh, absolutely. And certainly if something like that's going on, you want to make sure you have your public relations team involved. And that's why we saw movement really quickly on these issues, too, to go out and get um, temporary restraining orders and ensuring that um, consumers, public, aren't aren't thinking that this is actually what the manufacturer was trying to do. Well, so much for us all kind of circling the wagons and getting through this crisis together here about people doing things like that. And it kind of is discouraging. So, all right. So there's 2020. 2020 was exhausting. But let's look forward to 2021 and think about what we're expecting in the trademark arena moving forward. Anna, let's stay with you for a second. Got word that there are some fee increases, either proposed or definitely on the way, related to some trademark activities what kind of fees are we talking about? What kind of increase in these fees? How they work? What are the damages we're talking about here? That's right, Dave. Coming into effect January 2nd of 2021, and that's going to be the first fee adjustment in about three years by the trademark office. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much across the board. We're seeing it in application fees. Those are going to go up depending on the type of application, about $25 to $75 per class. Okay. We're also going to see it in the post-registration fees. So when you have to file these periodic declarations to maintain your registration, those are going to go up $100 to uh, $225 per class. And we're also going to see it in the the trademark trial and appeal board context as well. So that's where you go to file your trademark oppositions and cancellation proceedings. There we're seeing quite a significant raise in fees for petitions to cancel and notices of opposition. Mm -hmm. They're going to go up $200 to $600 per class. And also with the extensions, too. So while there's still not a fee for the first 30-day extension to oppose, if you file a second extension, a second 60-day extension, or an initial 90-day extension, mm-hmm. that fee is now doubled. So mm-hmm. it's going to be $400 per application, up from 200 And just the other last thing I wanted to note, too, was that there was going to be a new fee for requests for oral hearings, and that's going to be $500 per proceeding. So some other fees are out there, but I'm just kind of mentioning the ones that probably are most important to those out there thinking about when you want to file, when you want to renew, and just keeping in mind for these cancellation and opposition proceeding some of the fee increases that are going to take effect next year. Well, see, there might be one good thing about 2020 to look back at. It's like, at least those fees were lower back then. That was the force in 2020. There you go. <laughs> it's reaching for a silver lining, isn't it? So one more thing, again, looking out towards what's going to happen in 2021. Now, Meredith, I think this is a big story. In fact, I see another podcast in our future about what we're about to talk about. But you sent me a note about, I guess, back in March, representatives from both chambers in Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate, introduced the Trademark Modernization Act of 2020, which would amend the Lanham Act, right? What would it do and what's the current status? Because this sounds big to me. Definitely another podcast in our future on yeah. this one, Dave. Yeah, the Trademark Law Modernization Act is... The first real substantial modification to the Lanham Act in some time, and it's newsworthy from the trademark standpoint in a lot of ways, but also 
just from a day-to-day -day, like real life perspective, we've got bipartisan support for legislation. And in this climate, that's a huge deal. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we've got that to celebrate from 2020. But, but looking ahead, yeah, we're going to see three things I think transpire when I do think this will pass. One, it's going to give the trademark examiner some flexibility in terms of adjusting deadlines for responses and, and bring things kind of in, in tune with the time. So that's a helpful mechanism. Second, a problem in the trademark office for some time has been what they call deadwood registrations or registrations that really aren't in use in commerce. And so this will create a couple different ways in which to get rid of some of this dead wood in a more cost-effective manner for people in the U.S. who are trying to get their marks registered. So that's really helpful. And the third thing that it's going to do is it's going to change the law in some of the circuits right now, and it's going to restore the presumption of irreparable harm in Lanham Act cases, which is a big deal for trademark plaintiffs. So we'll be watching that one, and fingers crossed we get that passed in 2021. Yeah, I hope so. It all sounds reasonable and doable, a new administration and some changes over on Capitol Hill, but hopefully calm heads prevail and, and we'll see what happens there. So we'll be watching that. We would be remiss and we're never remiss around here. At least we try not to be remissful, if that's the word. We ought to talk about what the Women in IP initiative is planning for 2021. And I don't know what the Women in IP initiative is planning. That's a, a lesson for you aspiring podcasters admit when you don't know something. But you know who does know? Meredith Wilkes, and she's still here. So Meredith, talk about, if you can, what kind of plans are on the board, what you're hoping to do, what's confirmed, what your thinking is towards 2021, what the initiative might be doing. Lots of really great things in store for women in IP in 2021. Really proud of our group, our team, our committee. We are now five years into programming, which wow. I, I just, I'm really, I'm really proud of that. I think that's a big deal. In 2021, we've got at least four CLE programs that we're planning to deliver. One is a global view of litigating patent invalidity. And so we're going to have colleagues on the line from the U.S., from Australia, from Germany. Um, we haven't done anything like that before yet. So that's going to be a, a really cool offering in March of 2021. We'll do a leadership offering in June of, of 2021. And then we'll round out the year doing a brand update and also doing a patent update. And hopefully that patent update will talk about all the amazing therapies and vaccine development that have taken place since 2020. And so uh -huh. we're, we're looking forward to that. First two offerings will be virtual only. You know, we like to do these live in person, but the first two for sure will be virtual. And then we'll see what happens for the September and November offerings. If we're lucky enough to do them live, we'll let folks know where we've picked in the United States to offer those. And if we go virtual, then that's fine too. But sure. that's the plans, at least for our CLE programs for 2021. The information will be imparted. The one on vaccines, I think it's going to be quite popular. <laughs> There's a lot of interest out there. Even there will be close to a year from now, whatever happens. So it sounds like it's a well thought out agenda. That's for certain. Hey, this is one of my favorite programs we do every year, catching up with you guys and looking forward to next year and everything. So thanks so much. I, I appreciate the preparation. It's always a very popular podcast. So thanks so much for your help. And you know, we'll talk soon, right? Thanks so much for having us, Dave. We so appreciate it. Thanks, Meredith. Thank and thanks, you. Anna. And uh, hey, best wishes for a great 2021. And we'll talk soon, okay? You can find complete biographies and contact information for Meredith and Anna at jonesday.com. While you're there, be sure to visit our Insights page where you'll find valuable content including more podcasts, publications, newsletters, blogs, and videos. 
You can subscribe to Jones Day Talks at Apple Podcasts and wherever else quality podcasts are found. That way you'll never miss a program. And finally, we at Jones Day Talks hope you and your family have a joyous holiday season, and we wish you all the best in 2021. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.